In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you um, may have heard of a place called Bagshot Park in England. You may not have. Um, but that's where uh, Prince Edward and his wife Sophie live, the Earl and Countess of uh, Wessex. And uh, I've actually visited there many years ago. It used to be from 1946 to 1996. It was the home of the Royal, um, Chap uh, Royal Army Chaplains Department in the British Army. And so we were able to go there and have um, retreats and things like that. And it was a place of great spiritual refreshment and uplifting. And uh, as we walked around the property, you'd find there was a, there was a pond there. And uh, there was a sign by the pond. And it said, please do not walk on the water. And that was because they were worried about the chaplains uh, ending up like Peter, sinking into the water, or anybody else who was there on a real spiritual high, and they decided they would try it. And, uh, and then they would drown or something, and the, the chaplains department would be up for expenses. And that, that when, when the chaplain's department moved out in 1996, they took the sign with them. But to Prince Edward's credit, um, it's there. He's had another one made, and it's in place there by the pond. Please do not walk on the water. And that reminds us of the um, gospel reading today, where Jesus did actually walk on the water, and Peter did walk on the water as well for a short while. This miracle follows another miracle, which was the feeding of the 5,000. It comes immediately before it in Matthew's Gospel. Many, 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 many years ago, my dear wife, Kuria Janet, was a little girl growing up in the East End of London. Her father was a policeman there all through the war and then after the war until he retired. And he was a Methodist, and he used to go to the Methodist Central Halls in London. And they were packed. Her memories as a child were of this hall with 2,000 people packed into the hall. Um, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience for her. Then her father retired and went, moved out of London. And um, 10 years later, she came back to London to train as a nurse. And where do you think she wanted to go on Sunday? She wanted to go back to that church, which she had many fond memories of as a child. So she went there, and she was shocked. The church was in disrepair. There were only about 12 people there, and she couldn't understand what could have happened in that short time of when they moved away, uh, the 10 years, what had happened? But when it came to the sermon, the sermon that day was about the miracle before today's miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And the preacher spent the whole time trying to explain how it wasn't really a miracle and there were rational um, explanations as to how it all happened. And then she thought, this is why... The church is empty. And so, thank God, she went off and uh, found a very good Anglican church 
became an Anglican, and um, otherwise I would never have met her. And so I thank God for that part of the story. Miracles are very important. They're a very important part of the gospel. Um, if we go to um, the book of Acts, we find here the uh, day of Pentecost, chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and St. Um, Peter is preaching, and he says this. So we've had, the, we've had at the beginning of chapter 2, we've had the coming of the Holy Spirit. And now he's out preaching in the street, full of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. So when the church dilutes miracles, it's diluting the gospel. And so today, when we look at this miracle of the uh, walking on the water, it is a miracle. Jesus did walk on the water. Peter did walk on the water for a while until Jesus had to rescue him. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is very important. It's a messianic sign. It showed to the people, and they would have understood it, that he was the Messiah. He was claiming to be the Messiah. After he'd done that miracle, um, he, we're told in our gospel today that he made the disciples get into the boat and sail across the sea. Um, in one translation it says he compelled them to get into the boat. They didn't want to go without him, but he compelled them to go. And off they went across the sea. I actually preached on this passage last year, if you can remember, and um, I said there were two types of storm that we can end up in. One is a storm of correction. That's the kind of storm that Jonah ended up in. And the other is a storm of perfection. And this is the storm that Jesus sent them out into, where they were going to learn to trust him more in this difficult, uh, challenging situation which they found themselves in. Uh, after another year now, uh, we, were, we were in, I think we were, we were certainly struggling with the virus last year, this time, and here we are again a year later still struggling with it. And you might ask, are we in a storm of correction or are we in a storm of perfection? And to be honest, I don't know. There's every right for us to be in a storm of correction. When you think about what's going on in our Western world, when you think of what's going in our, on in our Victorian Parliament, they're trying to get rid of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus himself taught us. There's been an attempt to get rid of that from our Parliament. And our Premier has said that if he gets re-elected, he will remove it. So there's every right for God to give us a storm of correction. But I, I'm not qualified to say whether that's the case. But whether it's the case or not, we can use this storm as a storm of perfection. We can grow in this storm. And this is what I want to reflect on today. Matthew's main point in the miracle of Jesus walking on the water after he fed the 5,000, which showed that he was the Messiah, was to reveal to the disciples and to us who are reading these stories 
2,000 years later, who he is, who he really is. He wanted to show them that he was more than just a man. And he achieved that through this event. Because at the end of the gospel story, we read that they worshipped him, saying, you truly, you are the Son of God. This is the first time in the Gospels that they recognized Jesus and called him the Son of God and worshipped him. They confess his divinity by worshipping him. This is what we're doing now in our liturgy today. We're confessing that Jesus is God by worshipping him. But of course he's not just God. He is fully man. He was a man walking on the water and he is fully God. This is why we're watching the live streaming together. We're, we're commemorating this as best we can today um, with, uh, with each other. Uh, we're not looking for a great production. We're not looking for a great sermon. Thank goodness. We're not looking for great singing. We're looking to confess that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is divine. That's why we're worshipping together. And we'll read that together in the creed. We'll say that together in the creed later on. And I hope those of you at home might say the creed when it's said here or when it's sung. Uh, join in with us. Where we say, One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. This is core foundational uh, to our faith. So that's the main takeaway I wanted to draw out today from the Gospel. And then I want to look at the Epistle. St. Paul in the Epistle is dealing with a great challenge. Um, the challenge of holding the church in Corinth together. He starts by reminding them of how immature they were when he evangelized them. He says that they, they seem not to have progressed in their faith and they're still immature. What made him say that? The evidence that he was referring to is their readiness to divide into factions. In this case, some people were saying they were following Apollos and some people were saying they were following Paul. And so there was division in the church in Corinth. And when they do this, St. Paul says, is they're missing the point, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, not Apollos, not Paul, but Jesus. That's all that matters. And he uses two metaphors in these early verses in um, chapter, nine, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the first one is of a garden, and the second one, which was in our reading today, is of a building. In the garden, uh, St. Paul says that he planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the increase. And then he refers to the building. And he said, <clears throat> he laid the foundation, but Apollos built on that foundation. But the foundation is Jesus Christ. Not Paul, not Apollos. That's the key point. Christ who fed the 5,000, the Messiah. Christ who walked on the water, 
Christ, who is the Son of God, <clears throat> he is the foundation of that building. Not Apollos, not Paul, no one else. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 11, it says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And he then goes on to develop the image, um, which, it, which equates the congregation with the temple of God. <clears throat> and now we can see, clearly exposed for the first time, the seriousness with which St. Paul views any division in the church. And his horror of those who cause division. <clears throat> Do you not know that you are the temple, that's you plural, by the way, not you singular, you pl plural, you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you, plural, are? <clears throat> so he's saying to the church in Corinth, anybody who's causing division is destroying the temple. And God will destroy them. So this is a very important issue that St. Paul raises. God is the only one that matters. Not Apollos, not Paul, nobody else. So what's the message for us today, 2,000 years later? <clears throat> well, we're living in very difficult times at the moment. Uh, we're in a storm, and it's a storm. If it, we, it might be a storm of correction. It's definitely a storm of perfection. So we can grow through this time if we allow God to let us. <clears throat> Father Nicholas was telling me the other day that there are it, it, what's happening now is some people are going around churches trying to find priests who agree with their view on wearing masks or vaccinations or whatever. And if, they, if the priest agrees with them on those issues, they go to that church. If he doesn't agree, they won't go to that church. This is just the same thing as St. Paul was talking about. It's nothing to do with masks or vaccinations, or anything else. The foundation of our church is Jesus Christ. And if we all um, have that same foundation, the other disagreements shouldn't cause us to be walking around looking for somewhere else to go where the priest agrees with our opinion on a particular issue. <clears throat> Humans, it's... You could almost say to be human is to disagree. In the Western culture, we've always disagreed. This, this is how we've moved forward. Um, uh, there's a bit of an, uh, an effort at the moment to stop discussions and disagreements and arguments, which is a, a pity because it's been the strength of our Western culture. We disagree, we argue until we find something that really works. We don't impose one view on other people. Um, we're, we're allowed to discuss and argue and disagree. But we mustn't let these disagreements take us off the foundation of our church, which is 
Jesus Christ. Our unity does not come from all thinking the same about everything. Our unity in Christ should transcend all our differences in culture, in opinions, in politics. Our identity flows from Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the foundation of our faith. A key to orthodox spirituality is learning to live with uncertainty. <clears throat> this is not easy. In the West, we've had it very easy, where we've had certainty, we've had medical support that when we wanted it, we've had all the food we've needed, all the help we've needed whenever we need it. But this pandemic is really shaking our culture to its foundations. And there's a lot of uncertainty around. We must learn to trust God in our uncertainty. Instead of trusting our own minds, our own opinions, our own conclusions. The disciples in the storm had to learn uh, to live with uncertainty. They didn't know whether the boat was going to sink or float. They didn't know how long the storm was going to last. They had no idea that Jesus was going to walk across the water to rescue them. And they were terrified. That's what it tells us. They were terrified. And I think some people are probably terrified in the middle of this current storm that we're in, in the West. But the disciples learned to live with uncertainty when Jesus came to them. We need to learn to live with uncertainty because Jesus is with us. Peter was able to walk on the water for a while. Jesus gave him permission. He called him. And he's called us to worship him even during this pandemic by every means possible, which is at the moment just by the live streaming. But then he began to sink. He had that sinking feeling. And what happened? Well, instead of, being, instead of moving towards Jesus and keeping his focus on Jesus, he started looking at the storm. And then he started to sink. And he called out to Jesus, Lord, save me, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. And while we're in this storm, and it's going to last for a while by the looks of it, we need to keep our focus on Jesus. Because if, you, if we look at our leaders at the moment, you'll have that sinking feeling. Because they don't know what they're doing. They're doing their best. They're trying their hardest. But this is off the map. This is new territory. They've never been through this before. We need to look at Jesus and keep our focus on him. Then we'll be able to metaphorically walk on the sea during this storm. So even though we're in a crisis, even though we've got different opinions in our congregation, if we all keep our focus on Jesus and we remember that the foundation of our congregation, of our church, 
is Jesus. And we all have the same foundation. Then the devil will not be able to divide us. I want to finish with one little thing I read this week, which I thought was rather helpful. Because um, you know, in, in, my, in our congregation, we have people who, are, who would vote Labour. There's people who vote Conservative. So left, right. And we're all here together. And, and, and that's good. People ask me, who do I support, left or right? So I support my parishioners. <laughs> so that's how I get away with that one. Um, but I, I read this article by Stephen Freeman this week. Um, and he was talking about Vladimir Losky. And his, he wrote a book called Seven Days on the Road in France. And this was something he wrote during the sec- Second World War when he was fleeing from the Nazis. That was very interesting because in 1922, Vladimir Losky had to flee from extreme left-wing people, the communists in Russia, had to flee for his life with his father. And then in 1940, he found that he was fleeing from extreme right-wing people, the Nazis who were invading France. And he has a very interesting comment. He said, the extreme left, the extreme right, they're both evil. They're both wrong. Because both of them are unrealistic. They've got this utopian idea which they're going to enforce on the world. And it doesn't work. It never works. It never will work. So where do you go to get something in the middle between the extreme left and the extreme right? Right. And I'll finish with this third way with a quote from Losky's book. Only in the church can we find both a tradition that knows no revolution and at the same time the impetus towards a new life. So this is what the, the left are looking for, this, renew, this new stuff. The right are looking to try and hold things mummified from the past. But in the church we find tradition that knows no revolution and the impetus towards a new life that has no end. Uh, The church's theory, or if you like, vision, is based on a constant experience of truth. Now, this is what we're looking for at the moment, isn't it? Truth. Where do we find truth these days? Do we trust the media? Do we trust the television? Do we trust whatever? Can we trust anybody? Where's the truth? The truth is a person. The truth is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. He said, I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. This is why if we keep our focus on him, we will get through this together and we will get through it having grown, having matured and not being like the church in Corinth, which was still immature as they struggled with disunity. May God help us to stay united with our foundation firmly resting on Christ. Now to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit be ascribed all might, majesty, dominion and praise now and forever and to the age of ages. Rejoice,